I'm so glad that Frank can come. Uh, he's someone that I have uh, been a fellow colleague for, for personally for 13 years, and he's been in Libri much longer than that. And so I'm so glad that he can, he can come and represent us and to speak to our audience. COVID has given us the benefit of Zooming people in, just as it has given you the benefit of being able, being able to Zoom in to listen to what's happening on the ground and sometimes um, uh, to, to see fellow faces that you know are familiar to you. So I'm so glad that you're here. Now, just some of the ground rules of what we're going to do tonight. We're going to show Frank's, uh, Frank pre-recorded a, um, well, pre-recorded a lecture so that we can hear it and have a better quality. And uh, after that, then Frank will be uh, taking questions. But, uh, but yeah, welcome, Frank. Frank, uh, so glad that you're here. And I don't know if there's any word that you want to share before we start the video. No, greetings from Australia. Okay, it's wonderful. Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it's, right. uh, it's Saturday afternoon here. It's 10 past 12 in the afternoon. So now you guys are going towards uh, evening and towards bedtime. Uh, we're in the middle. We're just uh, having lunch. <laughs> and I think the United Arab Emirates are pretty close to the middle of the night. So, 6 a.m. Not too bad. 6 a.m.? Oh, wonderful. Okay. <laughs> wow, time is a uh, surreal thing. So maybe if you want to talk about time later, Frank, that'd be great. Uh, <laughs> okay, so without any more ado, I will uh, begin this video. Greetings from Labrie, Australia. I've been invited to speak to Canadian Labrie. Um, my name is Frank Stutman, and I've been director of Australian Labrie now for many, many years. In fact, Heather and myself have been involved with Labrie for over 38 years now. Uh, it's my great pleasure today to bring to you a talk on science in the Bible. I myself am a physicist. Uh, I have been an astrophysicist for many years. I'm retired now from university and we used to run Labrie at the same time as I worked quietly outside. If you look at the first slide you see something about myself. I thought I'd introduce myself first. You will notice that um, I have been very involved with science um, throughout my life. Uh, I'm, I do a lot of electronics. I've done a lot of electronics in my time. I'm interested in theoretical physics. I'm interested in doing uh, observational work and I've worked on the Parkes Radio Telescope, operated it as part of my, part of my research. Um, I guess I wanted to be a physicist all my life. I started uh, with uh, a real love for mathematics and uh, that graduated in my teenage years to uh, enthusiasm uh, about rockets. And uh, then um, apart from all of that, I ended up being uh, I was converted when I was 18 and going to Sydney University where I studied and um, so I've also got a passionate interest 
in Christianity and particularly in Christianity which applies to culture, uh, cultural understanding, cultural engagement, engaging with the world as uh, we find it, fighting the battle on the hill where Francis Schaeffer would say the battle is raging. And that's where I've been involved for many, many years in the context of Australian Libri. Now, I'm going to talk about science in the Bible and it, it, it will not, it will have some elements which are um, perhaps foreign to you in, in the way you think perhaps if you're a Christian and um, for those of you listening um, I think it's important for you to understand the value of science uh, and at the same time some of the tensions that it brings <coughs> excuse me some of the tensions that it brings with our understanding of scripture uh, and the Christian community has tackled this in a number of different ways. Um, some part of the Christian uh, community simply says, well, uh, whatever science says about beginnings or whatever science, uh, what conclusion science has come to uh, is patently a misinterpretation because we start from the Bible and therefore that is the, uh, that is the right answer and so there we have a situation where in fact uh, there's a kind of rejection uh, of early science because many feel well what what can they possibly measure uh, that could have happened in those early years on the other hand amongst scientists uh, who are christians including myself there is a tendency sometimes to simply say well it's a different language it's a different uh, phenomena it's a different magisteria some people would say and therefore putting those two together is really not uh, what we should be doing we should allow each to speak in their own paradigms and have really uh, they shouldn't be seen and shouldn't be compared shouldn't be contested against one another and so you have extremes therefore uh, in people's views you have um, some Christians saying well okay um, unless the Bible is authoritative and everything fits into that um, nothing can be right uh, in terms of interpretation and on the other hand we have um, groups of Christians who simply uh, who have great faith in God but who have kind of ignored the tension that is there uh, that could be there on a literal reading with the Bible and, and that has played itself out over many generations in fact this is not something that is just relatively new it's played itself out over many generations now, I want to start at the beginning if you like and look at the growth of modern science and the growth of disillusionment that has occurred because of the tensions that have been created. You must understand that science and technology have been very seminal in the changes that have occurred since the Enlightenment. 
Uh, often we talk about humanities, often we talk in terms of philosophy and art and culture and we talk in those terms, failing to see that technology itself has an enormous impact. Understanding of how the world operates has an enormous impact on just how people think and what they think even in terms of philosophy uh, and what's important and whether God exists and uh, what ultimately then is meaningful and what ultimately is believable. Those are the kinds of things that science has contributed to over many centuries in fact. Um, if we look at the first uh, slide we see that historically scientists were men of faith. The world is real and its form created by God and can be understood by all men and women because it is real, it has form. And so the world is the book of nature for many scientists which complements the book of Revelation and that's certainly how uh, early scientists who were people of faith, that's how they saw reality. They saw that there was a book of nature uh, in which we lived and then that complemented the book of Revelation. And so um, John Henry writes uh, in a Cambridge publication, Religion and Scientific Revolution, he writes this and you can see it. For the vast majority of us today, religious belief is a matter of personal choice. But before secularism became the norm in the West, God and religion were so pervasive in social political and intellectual life that it seems fair to say that all but a very few intuitively thought in a religious way. Certainly it is true to say that virtually all of the most prominent figures in the historiography of the scientific revolution were religiously devout and some of them extremely so. You have got to understand that scientists were not opposed to religion when science began. In fact, it's arguable that uh, religion and particularly Christianity in the West uh, has, has had a role to play and particularly since the Reformation has had a role to play in the importance of nature and the freedom for us to investigate that nature. And so early science, many of them were Protestants, not all, many of them were Protestants, uh, many of them were Puritans, particularly say in the formation of the Royal Society in 1660. Many of them were in that category and they were religious, fundamentally so. <clears throat> Here's an example uh, in the next slide. Robert Boyle um, those of you that have done any elementary science will remember Boyle's Law which is pressure and volume and how they are related to each other uh, in containers. Robert Boyle, who was at one stage the president of the Royal Society, writes this, God loving, and it's in Old English so you'll have to bear with me, God loving as he deserves, to be honoured in all our faculties and consequently to be glorified and acknowledged by acts of reason as well as those of faith. There must be sure a great disparity betwixt that general confused and lazy idea we commonly have of his power and wisdom.
and the distinct rational and affecting notions of those attributes which are formed by an attentive inspection of those creatures in which they are most legible and which were made chiefly for that very end. Here is a man who saw both the importance of uh, the rational understanding of nature to the glory of God as well as faith to the glory of God. Here's another quote by him. Writing to the, the, as a, to the Fellow of the Royal Society, um, which is an English institution, and indeed if you have FRS behind your name, you need have no other qualifications because it's, you are elected by other top scientists and it really is an important institution. To the Fellows of the Royal Society in his last will and testament, wishing them a happy success in their laudable attempts to discover the true nature of the works of God and praying that they and all the other searchers into physical truths may cordially refer their attainments to the glory of the great author of nature and to the comfort of mankind. You can see that the book of nature and the book of revelation had a place in the minds of men like Robert Boyle. But of course, as we move to the next uh, slide, there's a growing tension and doubt. Growing scientific understanding of nature, measurement of nature, uh, began to contest the plain and traditional reading of scripture. Now that is an important factor in the growth of doubt and the tension that follows. It's not that science is against religion, that's not so, but certainly as science measurements were being made, people began to feel uncomfortable with the idea that how do you make that work with science, with the, the Bible. The authority of scripture therefore to reveal factual, scienti factual scientific and defensible truth was very much harder to believe. A growing doubt about the existence was a, this was also accompanied with a growing doubt about the existence of God as a concerned person. And so we find a growth to deism, or deism some people say. And deism is really a stepping stone to modern atheism. It's believing that God exists and started everything and started all the form, and, uh, but in a sense went on a long holiday after he started it all. Uh, yes, you believe in God, but for all practical purposes, God is not involved in the world that you actually live in. And this became very popular in the 19th century. Many prominent atheists exist, and because I'm a scientist, I'm quoting science-inspired people, people like Carl Gauss, mathematician, Dmitry Mendeleev, uh, Humphrey Davy, Max Born, Max Planck, Ludwig Boltzmann, Hermann Weyl, Wolfgang Pauli, Jules Verne. These may, names may not actually mean a lot to you, but they're great scientists and have been very seminal in the development of the science that we know that is now modern science. And so the secular age begins to eat up the sacred. In the 16th century, wonder was attributed to the working of the Jewish Christian God. Early Western tradition shows that. Now, I've already showed you a slide by Robert Boyle, but you could look at Isaac Newton, you could look at 
even a late 19th century person like Max Planck, uh, a German physicist, very seminal in the beginning of the quantum theory. By the end of the 19th century, wonder is still attributed to God as necessarily existing, but God is not personal or imminent. And as I said before, this might be called deism or deism. It was respectable to be a deist in all sorts of circles when ordinary men and women were particularly religious. Albert Einstein might be classified as one such person, always believed that there needed to be some sort of organizing principle behind the universe, uh, uh, um, uh, Spinoza-like uh, philosophy, uh, and he certainly believed in that, but could not come to the, the agreement that it was a personal God interested in the fates uh, of us as human beings. Continuing, we move right through into the 20th century. Uh, this wonder is retained in what might be called in a broader sense, certainly up to the late 1950s, a cultural Christianity. It's amazed uh, that the, uh, it's a, a continued amazement of the fact that the universe is a remarkable place and so there is wonder retained uh, about but transcendence increasingly becomes part of the back burner. Um, Richard Feynman is an example of that. Stephen Hawking might be another example of that. And Christianity therefore becomes relegated to a good ethical system and as I said it might be called cultural Christianity and certainly this would have been true amongst many prominent science. The Nobel Prize winner Richard Feynman for instance writing this uh, in the book of the meaning of it all uh, writes this, Western civilization it seems to me stands by two great heritages one is the scientific spirit of adventure, the adventure of the unknown. The other great heritage is Christian ethics, the basis of action on love, the brotherhood of all men, the value of the individual, the humility of spirit. These two heritages are logically and thoroughly consistent. However, he writes, is the modern church a place of comfort for the man who doubts God? More one who believes in God or one who disbelieves in God, is the modern church to give comfort and encouragement to the value of such doubts. And you can see that, you can see that a relegation to an ethical system which through the 1960s and continuing on to the day has increasingly been diminished. In fact, as many of you already know, many people in society see Christianity not as a solution of our ills but as the problem to be wished away and that's where we are in our culture today. Let's look at some uh, reasons why modern scientists uh, would perhaps disparage uh, religion and certainly Christianity because that's what we're really talking about. The Nobel Prize uh, physicist uh, who uh, won a Nobel Prize in 1979 is in fact Steven Weinberg and um, he won it for the senses of electromagnetism and the weak force. It would take me too long to explain those things to you. But he writes this in his book, Dreams of a Final Theory. It is almost irresist and is almost an irresistible temptation to believe 
that there must be something for us outside the banqueting hall. The honour of resisting this temptation is only a thin substitute for the consolations of religion, but it is not entirely without satisfactions of its own. Stephen saw it as a, structural, as a struggle for intellectual honesty. And many modern scientists do, in fact. The reason that they're not, they don't subscribe um, uh, personally to uh, Christian faith so often comes down to intellectual honesty for them. Sure, there are people who um, don't want to obey God and you might want to wish, you might want to argue that this is a, only an issue of the will, but so many of them, for them, it's an intellectual honesty question uh, in terms of the results of modern science, the results of uh, how the world is understood, the natural world is understood, the physical world is understood, and how that seems to have tension with some things in, in, in the Bible, and therefore um, they find it an issue of intellectual honesty. And I think you have to, you really have to be honest at this point, that that is where some people actually are. You have Richard Dawkins, who's well known to you for written our, our number of books, including The God Delusion. Uh, but he again uh, has come to a conclusion uh, out of his science, and he writes this in, in, in The River Out of Eden. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it or any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That was written as, as a Darwinian view of life. Now, you know, it's, a, it's a, one, one can, I, I could do a whole lecture on Richard Dawkins and some of those things, but, but the reality is here is, here is a full-blown atheism, uh, a reality that what is, is, and whether we want meaning and value and whether we think there's a God is kind of irrelevant. The bottom line is this is what nature really is like. And then, of course, we see a growth, which we see in our culture as well, but we see a growth that religion is actually an impediment, and particularly the Christian religion is an impediment. And, and a great uh, Barraker for that position would be Sam Harris, a neurobiologist in fact. And he writes for many, and he says, for many scientists, religion, Christianity is considered an intellectual suicide and an impediment to progress in society. And a very small book that he wrote, The Letter to a Christian Nation, A Challenge to Faith in America, brings this out. I think his arguments can really be contested. I think he really doesn't understand scripture and neither does Richard Dawkins, by the way, really understand uh, the flow of scripture and what it's actually getting at in terms of the relationship between God and us. I, don't, I think neither of them really get it. And that's a pity, but that's a separate discussion which is interesting to have. 
Now, there are scientific challenges uh, to scripture. There are some scientific challenges and I want to list some of these. The age of the universe and the age of the earth are two examples. Uh, measurement uh, of uh, the expansion of the universe, of seeing things like the cosmic microwave background, of radioactive decay for the for um, uh, particular radioactive series which no longer exists and have a very long half-life. These things all contest fundamentally the idea that the Earth is young. Um, the other thing that's contested, of course, is did cosmogenesis take place in six days? Uh, it took time, uh, and to that extent, the script, scripture and, and science agree with each other. It took time. However, six days is hard to accept from what we see in terms of fossil records and so on. And so there is contest there and can't be minimised. Um, is all modern humanity, Homo sapiens sapien, uh, are they descendants of Adam and Eve? That would work if, the, uh, if everything is very young and, and all those kinds of things, but fossil records for human skulls, Homo sapiens skulls, skulls with foreheads like ours, uh, with reduced eyebrows here, with particular chin structures. Those kind of fossils go back 160, maybe even as far as 190,000 years ago. It is certainly true that Homo sapien that we are, uh, have ex are the last in an evolutionary record. So even if you don't believe in an evolutionary uh, uh, product, uh, of over time, if you like, the truth is that hum that human beings are the last, and to that extent, it's certainly consistent uh, with uh, Scripture's understanding of our creation. The other thing is that the fossil record is stratified, which is uh, which is not just simply due to one flood, but to many, many large floods, and therefore. Uh, we have a stratification uh, that has occurred over uh, literally uh, millions of years. And so those are some of the contests that are there. Now, again, I have not uh, done given due credit to really going into these and pulling them apart, uh, but I'm assuring most of my audience is not scientists, and all I've done is kind of say, well, yeah, there is a contest, and you can't just pretend that there isn't. Then, of course, there's the Darwinian evolution, and that's now the explanatory choice, uh, explanatory uh, paradigm of choice. Uh, you've got to understand that evolution is a much broader concept than simply biological evolution. Uh, we, in science, the view of how the universe came to be from its origins in the Big Bang through, through its formation uh, from uh, radiation through to uh, atoms through to the whole cosmological thing of the formation of stars and planets and galaxies. All these kinds of things follow an evolutionary trend and so the concept of evolution is very broad, not just simply biological evolution, and some people would even go into social evolution and would argue that uh, we, say in the West, have uh, advantages 
because we have socially evolved over uh, other societies who had uh, different kinds of technology uh, and different kinds of distribution networks, different kinds of health and so on, and that we have developed that and that social evolution. So evolution is a, is, is a big concept and, and really uh, is not simply limited to uh, Darwinian evolution. But again, that is that the idea of um, uh, that there is a relationship uh, between uh, potential relationship between various animals, uh, relationships between us and the apes, uh, modify is borne out by such things as uh, there's only a 1.2, 1.4% genetic difference between us uh, and the apes. Now it's what a difference. It's not. It's not trivial, but genetically it's, uh, it's very small. And indeed, uh, this is something that Francis Collins points out, for instance, in his book, uh, The Language of God, and he's a Christian. Uh, it's, it's very likely that the 24 chromosomes that the uh, ape have, the two of those are fused, and you can see that fusion in the 23 chromosomes that are actually part of our uh, genetic makeup. So you see, there are real challenges and you need to uh, be honest at this particular point and say, well, okay, how are we going to deal with this? And I'm hoping that by the end of this talk that you might have some way of thinking about this. It may not be popular. You may not like it. I understand that. But the reality is that I'm putting something out that you may need to think about um, rather than simply uh, dismissing it. Okay, so let's look at our next slide. The Bible and science, in my view, ought to inform each other. And so in my figure, the two overlap, they ought to inform us each other. They're complementary. The emphasis, by and large, is complementary. In other words, um, science will give us the mechanisms uh, and scripture will add value add to why, but it does an awful lot more than that. Science will not tell you how to live, despite what Sam Harris says. Uh, this uh, needs to be critiqued. I don't have time to do that at the moment, but, but someone like Sam Harris would argue that science can tell us, because of brain states, how to live well. Uh, that's a complex argument and has some detractors, including myself. Um, the, but the, the point being, science by and large can't tell you how to live morally and how to live well. On the other hand, the Bible can't tell you anything about atoms and cosmology. Uh, well, it does tell you some about cosmology, but it can't tell you anything about um, uh, such things as uh, DNA and how atoms work, quantum mechanics, those kind of things. Uh, that's not the precinct of the Bible. And so these two come together and they overlap. And much of the discussion and much of the argument actually sits in the overlap. Uh, by and large, they live uh, and in a complementary way. And as I've got on the slide, uh, the emphasis of science in science is mechanism, and the emphasis in scripture value adds the why. I mean, science hasn't got enough reason for its own existence, in fact. The truth is that we see the world to be ordered and have form, we see the world to have certain properties and laws and form. But why that's so is not something that science can actually answer. It's just not possible. And so there is a sense of complementarity because the Bible does give us an answer about how the universe 
uh, came to be uh, by the existence of God, a transcendent being who has made what we've seen a contingent reality. And the Bible also reveals that that, con that transcendent being is actually a person and that's a huge story which the Bible develops in fact and this is one of the reasons why uh, people become Christians because they see that this God is not simply disinterested but interested in who we are. Now there are two types of revelation uh, from God uh, and they've been called general revelation and they've been called special revelation. You sometimes hear those terms theologically. And by general revelation we mean such things as the nature that we live in, the science, the history, the archaeology, etc. Uh, these things are true for all of us, whether we're Christian or not. Um, so God, in this general revelation we read, is the cause of, of that nature the cause of history. The, we see the awesome power of God, we see the amazing engineering, we see God's amazing fine-tuning of the universe. We might call this natural theology, but it's general revelation and it's something that gives a sense of eternity in our hearts, as, uh, as Ecclesiastes would say. The special revelation is specific information that you can only get by actually looking at the scripture, the Hebrew scripture in particular, and later the Christian scripture. Uh, this gives us the knowledge of who Yahweh really is. God, Yahweh in, 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 uh, in, in the Hebrew. His moral character, his relationship to us, his expectations of us, his commands, our rebellion, his wrath at our rebellion, his grace and rescue, salvation that is, provision to us. These are the things that we read in the special revelation uh, in the Bible. Now, because Judeo-Christianity is firmly set in the flow of and context of reality, of history, of space and time, Christianity sets itself in that context. Other religions don't necessarily do that, but Christianity almost is daring in its ability to argue its, its uh, uh, connection to the world that we live in, our reality in fact, in both history, space and time. And so, therefore, the Bible also contains both general and specific revelation. So it's not just general revelation outside the Bible, which we see, natural theology, but there is actually um, general revelation in the scripture as well, and specific revelation. It, there's both of those things. Now here comes an area that really begins to open up some of the difficulties uh, in interpretation, and I want to bring this to you to open a discussion, if you like. Now, general revelation is open to enhancement. Why? Well, because we live in the flow of history. Um, we are therefore able to measure, we're able to record, 
we're able to look at previous documents, we're able to make measurements of the world that we live in, we can do archaeological digs, we can do comparative history, all these kind of things are part of general revelation and therefore these things are open to enhancement. Specific revelation on the other hand that we read in the Bible is not open to enhancement. Why? Well because it involves God's character. Excuse me, you cannot um, get an improved version of God's character by simply looking, looking outside the whole time. It doesn't tell you, it might tell you lots about how to improve your understanding of nature, but the truth is God's character, his moral laws, his judgments, his expectations, his rescue of humanity, all these things are spe special revelation and they're not open to enhancement. But the other things in the scripture, the general revelation, the things that are embedded in space and time and history and archaeology and so forth, these are things that are open to measurement and are open to enhancement if need be. Now this is not something that I would just gaily do as the liberal theologians have done and so often uh, contest everything. No, I don't, I don't think that's fair. Uh, I have a very high view of scripture. However, because there are general uh, revelation uh, uh, aspects in the scripture which uh, connect with, our, with that flow of history because we live in that flow of history, this is exactly what Christianity is about, it, it's possible to see improvements and enhancements uh, as such. And so we have in, in the Christian church a very common presuppositional model and that is that there is only biblical authority and by authority I simply mean ability to author my life. That's really what it means to have authority. Now, so therefore some people will argue that science uh, should be informed by the Bible and if there are things that we measure in science that just don't agree with a literal reading of the scripture, then science has got the wrong conclusions. That is a common position amongst many brothers and sisters. That is a common position. Um, that leads to the whole creation science movement that some of you are aware of and perhaps some of you are part of. Um, it's, it's a presuppositional attempt to say, well, the Bible is true and let everything else be wrong if it misinterprets uh, the measurement in some way and it's inconsistent with the Bible. Um, so science then derived from biblical general revelation that's there in, say, in the cosmology in early Genesis, um, that now begins to create huge tension uh, with difficulties in measurement science. It creates tension. And then that tension, how do we resolve that? And I guess that's the real thrust of what I'm trying to get at today. How do we resolve that? Remembering that we have both general and specific revelation in the scripture 
and I'm already started with the argument that well if it's general revelation then in fact is open to enhancement as we learn and study nature and understand things about things that are there and on the other hand uh, we have special revelation which is not open to that enhancement because that's really from God that's telling about himself uh, who he is and how we should live and what relationship we can have with him all right let's start at the beginning uh, and let's first of all lay some foundations which I think are there. We all argue from points of infinity and I, the, uh, I want to also start from some points of infinity. I've already mentioned one of those and that's a, a, a careful separation between general and specific revelation. Now I just want to say something which I think is important. All truth is God's truth. Now it's not my statement, it goes back in the history of uh, Christianity we think to someone like Augustine but a number of Christian great writers have said this kind of thing. Why is that true? It's actually biblical true. Even if you start with a total presuppositional point of view that well only the Bible and everything else must fit in and if it doesn't there are things wrong. Um, it's interesting that the scripture says two things what can be correctly interpreted in the book of nature as well as in the book of Revelation is valuable and reflects the nature of God. They inform each other. Both have been created by God and both are his word. Let me say, show you why. The Bible is the word of God. What we have in the written text, though not exhaustive and in celebration of humanity, is what God wants us to know that is true about himself. But Nature is also the word of God. Why? Because the Bible records it to have been spoken into existence. The form of the natural world reflects something of God speaking. Now that might be a new idea to you, but it's an important idea that you have not only the revelation of himself uh, as the word of God, but also the very reality that we live in has been spoken into existence at some uh, aeons ago at some point in our flow of time and history and that also reflects the nature of God and therefore uh, all truth is God's truth. We need to be careful therefore not to confuse intrinsic biblical authority which I believe in with traditional readings of its general revelation. We mustn't confuse intrinsic biblical authority, that is its ability to author our lives, with traditional readings that have occurred over centuries of its general revelation. And so I'll give you some examples. We can get it wrong. I'll give you some examples. Uh, is the earth really flat? Well, if you read Revelation 7.1, you might come to that conclusion. Does the earth move? In many places, the earth is set on foundation, but the earth rotates. Are we the center of the solar system and the universe? There was a belief, an orthodox belief, at one stage that it was so. That was held by Pope Urban, for instance, and that got Galileo into a lot of trouble because his measurements showed that we were not the center of the universe, we're not even the center of the solar system. The sun is. Is heaven just above us? Well, you might read various passages of scripture and you might get the idea that heaven is just above us. 
but the earth is, but the huge is, but the um, universe is huge. Something like 96 billion light years across. We have no idea. We're close. It depends on the model that you actually choose. It's huge. And so it's easy now to say, well, these are all biblical, uh, just metaphors, and that's how we often explain these things, and I agree, I don't disagree with that at all. But there have been generations of people who have held to particular points of view because they knew from this was an understanding of general revelation coming out of the scripture, which they held to. I had a woman in my lounge room some years ago who sidled up to me, she was a simple woman, but she sized up to me in a Labrie context and said, is the earth really round? I did not laugh. I took her seriously. And there are many people today, sadly there are Christians amongst them, who believe that the world is still flat. And that is itself an interesting discussion. But my point simply uh, is that people have held these, these kind of ideas and they've changed because we've enhanced our understanding of general revelation without detracting from the biblical authority that it can author our reality. Do you see? see you could see the nuance there. It's a bit more nuanced than people often talk. Uh, it's one thing to talk of biblical authority, but to also understand that there is, there is a nuance there, that there is both general and specific revelation, and general revelation is, is, is actually open to enhancement and improvement. And this doesn't detract from scripture. It may make certain things more metaphorical than they were before, but the reality is it doesn't alter the fact that the scripture has authority to author our reality as we even as we improve our understanding of some of the general revelation aspects uh, of the scripture i think this is a more helpful way to think uh, than to uh, end up with a an all-encompassing authority which then also impinges and not informs but impinges now and demands certain things to be uh, right in general revelation because the bible says so and i think that causes a number of problems which i think uh, detract from scripture in fact the danger is to make the bible your science knowledge about general revelation i think that's a problem and i know that some of you will disagree uh, and i do so respectfully but it's dangerous to make the revelation of say genesis chapter one your knowledge of how science should be Oh, I know lots of people say Genesis isn't science, but the minute you take certain things to be uh, uh, that's the way it was, six days, that age, and so on, that's your science. You can't get away from that. That is your science, because that is your knowledge. Science at its heart comes from the Latin scientia, which means knowledge. That is what you, is your foundational knowledge. And so now if you do that, you end up with a contest of that science versus the science of measurement. And it's a very difficult contest, believe me. This does not justify contesting the Bible's view of God's holiness in the area of morality because this is special biblical revelation. I know that people would immediately say, well, you're on the slippery slope to liberalism. That is not true. In fact, there is no justification 
of enhancing the special revelation particularly because that comes from God and so therefore the Bible's view of same-sex relationships of human binary identity as male and female the importance of family of lifestyle choices these things are not able to be contested the way people are contesting them and indeed some Christians are contesting them these are sociologically derived and not from God and that's the difference in fact the Bible points out in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 21 it is the rejection of God's revelation in fact which has opened the door to these alternative uh, ways of thinking uh, uh, about how we should behave with one another and who we our human identity and things like that okay so now let's get back to this point of making uh, Genesis our science if the Genesis account is converted into alternative scientific knowledge that is demanding a young earth 10,000 years old perhaps give or take uh, an Adam and Eve starting humankind 6,000 years ago the death of everything coming after the fall of Adam and Eve Noah's universal flood creating the whole fossil stratification uh, macroevolution never happened if that is what we would want to argue from uh, Genesis then then you have made that your alternative scientific knowledge now I stand by that because I think that's very important uh, for people to realize that that's what they're saying though they might not actually say that they that's their scientific knowledge but really that's what they're saying the Big Bang is not the story of beginnings is another thing that I've I've read uh, well if that's the situation then indeed there are some problems that arise this turns by the Bible then into a scientific debate between measurement science and itself and I actually think it diminishes the value of science and it diminishes the value of the Bible the truth is that it, 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 it turns uh, uh, Genesis into science uh, uh, limited but revelatory science and this inevitably contests with measurement science and it's really a contest between two sciences it's not actually a contest between the Bible and science it simply becomes a contest between the Bible as science in that area cosmogenesis of gen of gen and and the science of measurement and I think that's a different discussion when that debate occurs the truth is that it's a creation account it's not meant to be science but if you turn it into science it ends up becoming a debate with measurement science and I don't think that's an easy one uh, to find so uh, to win in fact uh, that's certainly been my, my experience remember that science has a place but it has a limited place in our culture science at best gives us only mechanistic explanations you'll notice there is a, a rose one is black and white and the other one is colored there's a difference science is the black and white version and the reality is colored science only tells us what is not what ought to be or why there are no answers to the why questions 
there is much more to the universe than simply that factual knowledge that we can get out of measurement. Um, why are the laws the way they are? Science uses rational laws, but why? Uh, being human is another area. Why are we unique as humanity? I said there was only about 1.2, 1 1.4% difference in our genetic makeup with the apes. Not the monkeys, the apes. I'm talking about um, such things as uh, gorillas and uh, chimpanzees, bonobos, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, but why the uniqueness? Uh, if you go to your local zoo, they're not discussing what we're discussing and there's a very small genetic difference between us. You see, there is something unique about being human. It is amazing. And I often meet people who say, oh, well, you know, we're just, we're, we're just the end of an evolutionary product or we just live on a, a G-type star, or a planet around a G-type star. That's not particularly important. But the reality is that if you look around you and open your eyes at what we do as human beings in terms of architecture and art and meaning and value and philosophy and science and engineering and technology and so on, it's amazing the difference between who we are and even our nearest genetic relatives. And we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that being human is magnificent. And the Bible would tell us it's because we're creating the image and likeness of God. That's why. And that's a very good reason, a very good answer, because it also answers why we're male and female at the same time. Our identity is actually given in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Going on, it also uh, tells, uh, the Bible also tells us why the world is so broken. Uh, in, in physics we call this entropy, but that also is something we learn. It's about a rebellion with God. Uh, there's a teleology, there's a direction to our universe. We see what evolution sees too, but we see this, these changes. These are the things that we also see. And so um, science uh, gives us only a poor understanding of the holistic reality of being human uh, in this universe. The biblical answers, in fact, value add to the banality of science mechanisms with, which has no answers to why. Okay, let's now look at Genesis. Because I think that for many people, I think they've got it upside down. Genesis is a remarkable book, and I'm particularly interested in chapter one. One can keep going. It, it, the, in a lecture like this, you can't hope to, ta to, to tackle everything, and there are many more things you could say. The glory of Genesis. Genesis was written around 1400, maybe 1450 BC, and I'm happy to attribute it to Moses. I'm not going to get into a huge discussion about that. The surrounding cultures that uh, Moses wrote in were Mesopotamian, Egyptian and Canaanite. Now these religions, and you can study them, you can easily go to the web and get information on any of these religions, these religions uh, had all sorts of creation stories as well, but none like the Genesis account. They had gods who copulated with one another and uh, who fought with one another and who did all sorts of things and ended up producing humankind in some way. Well, already the Genesis text is extremely, is, is, is different already. Um, Genesis, 
was not written as a scientific textbook, in fact, but as a story of beginnings and an apologetic even to the local culture. So if you think we've got trouble, they would have had trouble too, because their gods were not at all like Yahweh who's revealed uh, in Genesis, starting in Genesis. Uh, there is only one God, not a pantheon of gods. He's external to the universe. Of, now this is the crux, this is where I really think it's important to do some thinking. Of all the ancient texts, go to books that, I, that, that are easily obtainable to look at all the ancient cultures. Go to all of them. Of all the ancient texts, the Bible is the closest to modern science in its understanding of beginnings. Now that's a remarkable statement. The Bible resonates with much of science, as I'm going to show you. It's a resonance. It's a picture. It's not in the same sense of a measurement kind of process that modern science would be involved with. So it's important to remember, I'll say it again, of all the ancient texts, it remains the closest to modern science's understanding of beginnings. That's what I rejoice in. You know, a book that's 1450 BC, which is, means best part of two and a half thousand years ago, more, three and a half thousand years ago, that it is anything like our understanding of modern science is remarkable in every sense of the word. And I honestly think that barking up trying to make uh, it, the understanding coming out of Genesis science and then contesting it with modern science, I honestly think it's something that is actually hard to do and in some ways detracts rather than rejoicing in the fact that a three and a half thousand year old document is anything like modern science. That to me is amazing. It resonates. It's, it's, it's a resonance. It's a, it's a, 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 they're in sympathy with one another. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get. And that's remarkable. So let's look at some of these things and more or less finish our talk at that particular point. In Genesis, although it's not a detailed science textbook, and I certainly don't, don't go looking there for my science, I never think it's remarkable. However, of all the science, uh, of all the ancient texts, as I've said, the biblical revelation in Genesis broadly resonates. And let me look at some of the specifics there, which is quite interesting. Uh, the universe had a beginning. Well, science discovered that uh, it had a beginning and it's as young as 1929, in fact, when Edwin Hubble, the famous Hubble telescope is named after him, uh, discovered that, that the things that he saw weren't all stars, some of them were other galaxies, and measurements showed that they were actually moving away from us. Well, if they're all moving away from us, that means there was a beginning. Now that beginning has been uh, jokingly called the Big Bang. It wasn't actually a Big Bang. That was Sir Fred Hoyle's description of it because he had an alternative model uh, and obviously it contested his model. So he called it the Big Bang. And, uh, but the truth is, it's actually the beginning of space and time. It's the beginning of space and time and 
and atoms and uh, molecules and uh, matter and uh, uh, stars and galaxies and so on all of these uh, flow from space and time and in fact the changing of uh, the changing the expansion of the universe today actually means an expansion of space and time that's what it means it's a it's it's it's, a, it's an inflationary universe as some people would say well that's a huge discussion in its own right suffice it to say the universe had a beginning it's called the big bang it's the beginning of space and time now god created now god created in a moment now oh, it's interesting we have an inflationary universe and um, some people will know that we end up having an expansion of volume in the universe by 10 to the power of 76 uh, in 10 to the minus 31 of a second. If you're not a mathematician, you don't understand no, no, those numbers, doesn't matter. But those who do, the reality is it's fast and not unlike the idea that God spoke and it was so. Uh, it started in chaos. Um, uh, we uh, call that in, in, in physics a quantum gravity. Uh, the reality is that th those are the kind of uh, synonyms that you might want to use in those kind of relationships. Uh, there's progress in creation that we call biological evolution. Well, progress in creation it involves time. And that's exactly what we measure. Time is involved in creation. Uh, it's six days, admittedly, uh, in, in uh, Genesis 1. But you could also argue from verse 5 in Genesis 1 that a day is light and therefore we are talking about six periods of light. That's another discussion and I, that I could go into but wait for the moment. Uh, the point is that time is involved and therefore uh, what we see in evolution is there uh, as well. Uh, we see the separation of land and sea well, that's called plate tectonics. It's, 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 it's again, a, a, a resonance, if you like. That's the point I'm trying to make. Um, humankind is created last. Uh, that's consistent with science, in fact. Uh, the fossil record shows that Homo sapien, that is us, uh, that we're all descendants of, uh, appeared last in the fossil record. There's an original Adam and Eve. Now, it's not the Adam and Eve of the Bible. I don't want to say that. But on the other hand, uh, genetic uh, research uh, on the Y chromosome and on the mitochondrial DNA uh, arguably demonstrates that Homo sapiens had a beginning as well. Now, in that sense, uh, we can talk about Adam and Eve but the important thing is that it had a be that, that we have had a beginning too, uh, and that's not inconsistent with the scripture. There's something special about humankind. This is observationally true, in fact. Art, culture, creativity, language, abstract thought, transcendence, all of these things were, were unique. And that uniqueness, the Bible has often argued, and I totally think it's a very good answer, and that is that we are created in the image of God, that we, we can know God, and that's rather important. All right, so 
here we are, I've looked at very much at the beginnings of how we might relate science and the Bible together. I've tried to argue that the Bible also includes, also stands on general revelation. It's alluded to itself, it alludes to it itself, and it has special revelation. I'm arguing that general revelation is open to enhancement, to improved understanding of how things are. This doesn't detract from the authority of Scripture. But you can't make the authority of Scripture which authors our reality, you can't make that mean that everything else somehow or other uh, must fit in uh, all of general revelation as we know with our measurements so automatically must fit in. That enhancement possibility must exist. Specific revelation, the moral character of God, his injunctions on us to live well and, and our relationships and who we are, those things are not open to that discussion because they're not sociologically driven. They're sociologically driven, but they're not, God is not sociologically driven in that way. And so here we are, I've opened what I think is a, a door where we can allow enhancements of our understanding and at the same time, I've looked at Genesis from a different point of view, not from the point of view of trying to make it work as science, but from the point of view of how it resonates with modern science. Of all the ancient texts, it resonates so well uh, in many ways with modern science. Uh, and that is not a trivial thing to, be, to rejoice about, because three and a half thousand years on, it could have been very, very different uh, if we look at some of the surrounding cultures uh, that were there. All right, uh, from Labrie, Australia, I'm Frank Stutman, and I've enjoyed opening this door to you. See you.